Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. No, no. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. And you like to have fun, right? Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm your host, Eric Rieger of the Gut Check Projects, joined by this guy, General host dr kenneth brown ken what's up now is that general like general as a ranking or just kind of a general host like he's okay generally you're here and generally we have a show so so i am super 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 pumped about today's show because we have our first ever investigative journalist coming on heck yeah this is awesome we've talked about different books of other investigative journalists and super excited we have the great martha rosenberg coming on Martha is an award-winning investigative journalist known for her exposés on the pharmaceutical and agricultural industries. She has made significant impact through her deep investigations into corruption, corporate wrongdoing, and public health threats. Martha's reporting has shed light on dangerous prescription drugs, factory farming abuses, and food contamination leading to congressional hearings and enhanced regulations. Martha's FDA expose, born with a junk food deficiency book, established her as a prominent investigative journalist. Her work has been featured in major publications like the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, British Medical Journal, and the Neiman Foundation of Journalism at Harvard, just to name a few. Her contributions have not only informed the public, but also spurred significant policy discussions and actions solidifying her as a pivotal figure in health and safety reporting. And now her new book is actually has just come out. Big food, big pharma, big lies. Martha Rosenberg, welcome to the Gut Check Project. Thank you so much, Kenneth and and Eric. Um, And thank you for that wonderful intro. You know, the the best part of my work so far has been the whistleblowers that I've had a chance to meet because you can't write investigative um, pieces without sources. And I've just been, I've met so many wonderful people on this uh, path. Well, starting with whistleblowers, I mean, let's just get into it. So where does a whistleblower come from? Do you get inspired by a particular topic and then you decide, well, I'm going to find out more about this or does someone kind of reach out to you or someone that you know and say, you know what, I, we'd like for someone like Martha to kind of investigate. How does that get started? Well, believe it or not, Eric, um, the whistleblowers actually approach me. And I think that the high-placed reporters, like with the New York Times, they're, they're going to ignore these little emails. But I don't ignore them. I think it's gold, you know. And are you guys, either of you familiar with Propecia, the, the hair growth? No, um, well. Okay. So I had a whistleblower in, in UK and in England who – just reached out to me and, and I was just shocked. I didn't know uh, some of that. And then I had whistleblowers uh, reach out to me over Zolar, which is a biologic for um, asthma. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't ask my opinion, but overkill. And these two reps who were asked to sell it to children, even though it's 
contraindicated in children. You know, so uh, they they um, approached me. I did a lot with them. I've, over the years, I've had a lot of whistleblowers just plain write me, and I read my emails. So they'll reach out, and typically, obviously, you'll have to follow up, do an interview with them, see what the complaint is, and then how often are they able to to find other collaborators that will also kind of help validate their position, their story, and experience? Well, you know, whistleblowers are sometimes motivated by money because uh, they, they can be paid for what they're doing. But I find mostly when I want to corroborate what they're saying, um, I'll just go to medical sources, you know, research papers, which, which you know, I like PubMed, you know, Medline, Entree, because there are a lot of papers there that are not party line, um, big uh, drug maker. And so I'll corroborate their stories. Um, one thing I'm probably not really good with is going to the drug maker and saying, would you like to comment? <laughs> but, um, you know, there's there's a lot, like with the Propecia, when, once I met this, he was actually a, a policeman in, in UK. Once I talked to him, of course, there's a wealth of material about the the unethical marketing and the side effects and it's still being marketed the, the thing that's frustrating to me as a reporter is we can get all the uh, facts out there and and the, the drugs are still marketed you know definitely so like i guess you begin to wonder where's the threshold how much more information has to come out before somebody takes action? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we're at right now. We're seeing this so much where now that we're having these podcasts, now that people are able to speak their mind freely, it just seems like it's going to take more and more people talking openly about a lot of the things that are going on that are being controlled by big pharma, you know, the big organizations. Well, there, there's a lot, you know, Substack, of course, lets a lot of writers uh, and reporters reveal this information um also there's believe it or not a lot of support groups um around these harmful drugs who who really are are big some of them have millions so there there are counterweights to the pharma message but they're not you know one of my big beefs um i don't really watch tv but um my boyfriend watches sports so then i see it anyway you know and um when i when i look at how much revenue with our news outlets comes from big pharma they're never ever going to report report on drug risks because that's their revenue start, source and that includes even like a 60 minutes or a so-called news magazine they'll they'll tell you about um dangerous supplements they're not going to tell you what Pfizer is doing how Pfizer is trying to sell RSV in, in in adults which isn't even true you know yeah the when we sit there and think about that I, I overheard Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan recently, and Joe brought up this whole thing of drug makers advertising on TV. And Elon was like, well, I'm actually not opposed to that because it does inform people and things. But when you really stop and think about it, if you're the only person advertising on there, they don't even probably, they don't even care what their return on investment is. They're able to control the media as a whole from then on. And you have, um, I was listening to somebody who's in the same boat. I don't remember where I heard this. But the, um, the people that used to control the advertising were car makers. And so the car makers would right. basically tell people that they can't run that story because that goes against their narrative. So the same thing's happening, except now it's much bigger because it involves our health. Well, and it's, it's um, you know, I've read 
some analysis of these ads because they're very bipolar. You know, you're seeing the, the happy puppies and babies and you're he hearing brain bleeds seizures, you know. And um, <laughs> I read somewhere that the list of risks produces a kind of hypnotic state in people where they kind of like accept the message of, of this is a good drug. It, it doesn't unsell the drug, which you would think it would, you know. Um, so much, I used to work before I was a reporter, I was in the advertising industry. And so I know I made a lot of TV commercials, okay? Those are high budget commercials. They're, they're uh, subliminal on every possible level, you know, in terms of, of conveying like the one with the diabetes where, where it's okay to be fat, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> She's yeah. like, and I'm so offended by them because I was in advertising. In fact, being in advertising is kind of what brought me to being a, a reporter because I saw all the deception going on. Well, it's interesting yeah. because back in uh, when when Big Tobacco had to move into putting on the Surgeon General's warning on all of the cigarettes, there was a an argument that they would endure a lag in sales initially, but over time just like you described the long list or whatever, it would be normalized to see the warning that this product may cause cancer. Yeah. And so they hear it so often that on, they, they've tuned out, kind of like what you were alluding to. Well, and years ago, before any of us were even reading books, there was a book called Hidden Persuaders. Mm -hmm. And this author, I don't remember his name, but he had found in, in liquor ads that they put skulls in the ice cubes and death perversely sold the, li the liquor. And I, 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 there must be something in the human brain, you know, but you're right about the cigarettes. It's, it's, we're used to it. It doesn't bump us. Um, in some perverse way, it, it could even sell, but yes. certainly these drug ads are um, everywhere. It's almost like, where's the content? It's, it, they're almost the majority of the, um, newscasts, you know, you like know, the network news. A hundred percent. I just want to comment on, because even in your book, you actually wrote a little bit about that, about it being the, a hypnotic thing. Now, there's something else that's going on that I haven't heard many people talk about. As they do these commercials and they show people, it, they really, they have a certain tone and it's, you know, you know, you need to get back out there and do da 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 And then they show the happy puppies and everything. And what you'll hear is the tone will pick up a little bit, but more importantly, they'll be like, taking this drug may cause serious side effects, such as pyelonephritis, pneumococcal pneumonitis, and they throw out big medical terms that nobody would know. And so it becomes background noise as opposed to, you know, if you take this drug, your penis will fall off. And if they were just real blunt with it, people would probably hear more of it. Sure. And we're going to stop this particular podcast for a special invitation. This invitation is to join the Gut Check Project Raw Locals community. We all are tired of the bullshit where we turn for great information, who we can trust, and essentially, we want to put a stop to that. There's a lot of bullshit out there, and I know about that because I'm a butt doctor. We're here to build this community to bring trust back to you. There is a lot of shit out there. There's a lot of stuff being censored, and it stops here with our community. And I'm a gas passer, which means I put this guy's patience to sleep. I know that you don't want to be filled up with any hot air. Ultimately, we want you to connect with us. Ask us questions. Let's build a community around trust. No more bullshit. So if you're watching or listening on Rumble, click that red join button in the bottom right over here, and that will take you directly to GCP Raw. We're super excited for you to join. I mean, seriously, it's gonna be pretty cool.
It is going to be, dude, it is going to be cool, but it's hot as hell in here right now. Are we done? Should we just walk off? That's Paul. That's it. I think you're right. I think it, it, it's dismissed. And, uh, you know, if you uh, scan my book, I do begin with um, the medical journal ads before online, before direct-to-consumer advertising. And there was a time when all of this was not known to the patient. But, no, you're right. It, it's dismissed. And it's just it's so unethical. Uh, right now, you know, I, my new jihad against Big Pharma is, um, I'm, I'm sure you're both familiar with RSV. Yeah. Okay, and what Pfizer is doing is is trying to sell a RS, RSV vaccine because there's so much money in in, in the whole vax um, marketing, and most of the docs with uh, who I work with say it doesn't even occur in adults. It's just for kids. It, it hits kids. So like they're selling a disease to sell a drug. You know. Well, we don't have newborn babies doing IV drugs or or in prostitution, and they're being vaccinated for hepatitis b right away so if they're doing Thank that you. to a baby Thank then you. somebody right. at the board said why don't we give a baby vaccine to adults we can double our money there yeah that was i thought it was uh interesting in the book <laughs> the ads that were run back in the medical journals like uh giving your wife a sleeping pill for night squawks was an ad <laughs> <laughs> right. Honey, you're chirping too much take this <laughs> No, very sexist, very, um, really, it's almost like patient hatred. Like they hate these patients, you know? And uh, no, the, the sexism, the one about uh, the menopause, the uh, HRT, it's for, you know, when women um, outlive their ovaries, you're worthless because you're not fertile anymore. You know, that kind of thing. It's like now you couldn't get away with that. But, you know, the, the original ads were... Um, offensive in a different way and and patients didn't know what was being said about them or you know how how the doctors felt about them i remember one and I, I didn't put it in my book but it it, it was such derision uh, the headline said has she become a fixture in your office and it's some little old lady who's sick she's sick you know she's probably getting <laughs> that's nuts well hey on that uh, on that rsv vaccine by pfizer is that an mRNA uh, platform as well? I don't believe so. I think it's just um, kind of a version of a, a flu, you know, flu-like vaccine. You know, I think it's a virus, obviously. Sure. I've just uh, seen that they've tried to really be. inject the, the new platform of the modified RNA and, and kind of make it a, well, at least in the early go, some type of ubiquitous opportunity to do it. Although I think it would be controversial and still out to launch if that's even really safe. Well, I'll tell you, Eric, I have not written about this yet, but but my research shows me that it, it is in animals, food animals, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, our M MRA, you know, but the RSV, um, what they're doing, at least I listen to the radio a lot more than TV, and what they're what they're really pushing is a, a vaccine that has the COVID, the flu, and this RSV. I mean, talk about overkill, talk about... Um, you know, unabashed, uh, I, I would say, uh, insult to the intelligence, okay? Like, is three better than one? And they're actually saying a double your health or whatever, whatever it is. But, um, you know, the docs that I work with say that the RSV doesn't affect uh, adults, and, and they're, it's a scare tactic. You know, a lot of the um, DTC advertising is 
scare. You know, it's like, you may feel fine, but you're at risk. You may be at risk of, and that's just so unconscionable. That's where you started talking about when the, when they went from medical journals to TV and then when the what then when the World Wide Web came around, uh, you termed it as they became cyberchondria, where people would right, right. And so they were targeted, and people, you know, they were going to patients were often asked the doctor for a drug they had self-prescribed for a disease that they had self-diagnosed. <laughs> yeah, and um, I attended a medical conference uh, when when the Neurontin um, settlement happened, and this is over 10 years ago. It might have been 12 years ago, I forget, but there was a big settlement over Neurontin uh, misbranding, okay? Off-label marketing. And um, the, some of the medical schools had to create classes for the doctors in refusal skills to refuse that patient who comes in with a coupon and says, I saw this on TV and I have it and I want the drug, you know? <laughs> wow. Golly. And there was another funny thing with that at that conference. Um, there were some medical students who are probably practicing now, but they were students then. And they um, they told the, the docs in the audience, don't take anything from the reps. Don't even take a freebie. Don't take the drugs because you're psychologically embedded. And don't take lunch because it, it's, it is um, an effective sales technique. And one of the docs actually raised his hand and he said, yeah, but what do we do for lunch? <laughs> they had, when I was in medical school, and so this is all the way back to medical school, when we would work at the VA hospital, you do these 24-hour calls all the time, and there was stickers, um, hungry, get your Zosin pizza. Now, Zosin is an antibiotic. So they had a standing order that any medical student, resident, or even faculty, anybody could call up and order however many pizzas they wanted, and it would go on the Zosin tab. And somebody came through the ER, they were on Zosin. And then what, what is really interesting is just like they talk about the drug companies trying to get to the kids, because once you start with that, this is a version of a child. If you can, if you can ingrain a habit in a medical student, They'll bring that through residency, and then it is hard to unbreak it. I'll, I'll tell you who knows the most about this. Is So I'm somebody that lived a lot of the book where when these drugs were launched, and I heard those messages. Eric actually paid his way through CRNA school being a drug rep. He saw the That's other that, side of it. Right. Oh, my gosh, Eric. We're not telling you anything that you don't already know then. And no, so, I, honestly, I, I, was, I was pretty dismayed with a lot of uh, – uh, pharma working for them. Uh, it wasn't a lot of great people that I met in there. So I'm not talking about them specifically in their personalities, just the structure though, of the way that the education of the representative of the representative before they would go and visit with physicians, um, the way that we basically cherry picked studies on not only the studies that we use, but even the ones that we said were okay to reference, you know, how do we focus attention on this portion, the paragraph, these results, and kind of hide the other parts. Um, how do you reference this? How do you draw a physician or a, a nurse practitioner's attention to this area? None of it seemed altruistic. It all it was all driven towards a numbers game. I mean, so much so that you were just literally given sales reports. Back then it was called IMS data, and they would show you what physicians in your territory wrote X, Y, and Z, and 
it was always a race for market share in your category. If it was an antibiotic, it was how do I grow the cephalosporin out of all these cephalosporins. If it was a cardiology drug, it was the same thing. I want my calcium channel blocker to outdo X, Y, and Z. And um, it was never, it was, it was very, very little counseling on what was going to match best for the patient. It was why almost every single patient in your practice needs the drug that I'm selling. And I just, none of that felt right to me at all. So did you make a, a concerted decision to leave? Oh, yeah, pretty much <laughs> right when I started working there, I knew that I needed <laughs> out. I just didn't have an avenue at that point in time. Martha, if you will humor us, and I'm putting Eric on the spot here. Eric has two great drug rep stories. <laughs> okay. You need to know, you need to know as an investigative journalist and put into your next book. Okay, I will, I will. And you know which two I'm talking about, the one with the hamburgers, which oh, is yeah. awesome. That yeah. one's cool. He'll start out with the good one and then the kind of funny one and uh, what his company told him to do afterwards. I, okay. So the the hamburgers, uh, I was given a a budget. And every month we had to sell. Oh, I'm sorry. We had to use up this entertainment budget. And it was, you know, lunches, dinners. Uh, and, <laughs> and back when I did it, it was, it was still okay to go golfing and just different a activities like that. So, um occasionally you just didn't have, there wasn't enough, there weren't enough people, enough appointments to spend all of the money. And then that was where a manager would be told to inform me that you have to spend this budget. If you go over a little bit, it's okay, but you must spend this budget. So the numbers and the market share for me at that point in time were okay anyway. And so I just started thinking, what am I, I don't really enjoy this industry that much. What can I do? So I basically just started going out. Um, there was a place in Wichita Falls that was a little bit uh, uh, low economic status. I would buy hamburgers or whatever and then go and just hand them out. Well, then one day I'm doing this in Ardmore, and I had an appointment to go and call on a particular doctor. And I really liked him, but we didn't really sell that much with him. But um, he happened to drive by, and he saw me out of the back of this uh, Jeep Liberty is what I had at the time. And I was just handing out all these boxes and it was all hamburgers and it was a bunch of, you know, more or less kind of uh, low economic poor folks in this particular neighborhood. And he happened to zip by and he slowed down and I waved at him. And then that afternoon I went and did my call on him and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, y'all didn't need lunch. And I just, I was told I need to spend it. So I just bought a bunch of hamburgers and handed them out. Ironically, that was the best selling technique I ever had. He ended up writing a lot of my stuff because he just thought it was so cool that that's what I was using the budget for. But well, so the money was actually better well, spent serving the public. And it, it's weird. It, it sounds like a funny joke, but the truth is the money was better spent directly serving the public than then going in and handing out food to an office, which had plenty of food and people fighting over providing lunch for uh, anyway. So that was the good story. And he was a cool dude. To, to uh, he, yeah, he's actually a, a great guy. He, he may have retired by now, but his name was Doc, Dr. Four. He was really, really cool. This um, next one I think you're really going to like. Yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't see this story in your book anywhere. <laughs> no, uh, this isn't in your book. Uh, so I, for a brief period of time, I worked uh, for a company called Roche. And uh, actually through a... a uh, a liaison company, but anyway, it was, it was Roche and they had just launched Zenical and Zenical, uh, I think the generic name was Orlistat, but Zenical was, um, was situated in what they claimed was it would prevent 
one-third of dietary fat from being absorbed or something like this. And, of course, this is back in the era when we believed, we still believed, or a lot of people did, that all fat was bad. And that's where weight gain was coming from, which is obviously not true and already quite a myth in its in its own right. But so I had a physician that I was good friends with, and he 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 saw me transition from one company to this one. And I went and I called on him. And I said, you know, we have this new launch drug. Uh, it's called Zenical, and it's not covered by insurance, but maybe you could find somebody to put on it. And he and I always had a great rapport. He would tell me jokes when I come to see him and vice versa. Well, a couple of weeks goes by and it comes around for my cycle to go see him. And he's like, hey, I've, I've written the drug. We'll see how it goes. I was like, awesome. So we talked about other stuff. A few more weeks comes back by and I go in to call in his office and he sees me and he says, Rieger, come here. And then, so I'm thinking we're going to go into his office and he's going to show me something funny. And he says, hey, I wrote... That Zenical. I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah. Um, when were you going to tell me about the ass oil? <laughs> and so <laughs> I just looked at him and I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he goes, that's what I said. When were you going to tell me about the ass oil? I was like, I, I don't know. And he's like, let me tell you. I had, and he named a patient, come in. I wrote it for her. She tells a story about how she went to United a grocery store to go shop, which was in Lubbock. And she thought she had just a little bit of gas to let go. But what she did, yeah, she ends up just blowing uh, oil all over <laughs> her pants as it dripped down her leg and then into her shoe. And he asked me, how did I, he, he, he said, do you want to know how I know that that's what happened? And I was like, not really. And he's like, well, because she brought her soiled shoe oh, no. and close oh, to me in her God. United sack and told me she wanted to get this fixed. So then Roche's response was, we all got on a phone call and their, their, their response was to tell us, you need to go back to your physicians and tell them, don't worry, this is not diarrhea. They are not losing electrolytes. They are losing, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. So you, I mean, I can just imagine that someone's sitting in a, in a restaurant and they're just littering their own seat with a lot of oil saying, don't worry, y'all are making fun of me. It's not diarrhea. I'm losing weight. I'm getting healthy. So needless to say, uh, yeah. Zenical yeah. didn't didn't do so well, and several of, us, several of us were laid off not long after that. What an ill-conceived concept. But, you know, that brings me to a question I want to ask both of you, okay, because I'm learning every day. And I'm really wondering from a gastro um, uh effect but doctor uh, yeah <laughs> gastrointestinal um perspective what about the glpi receptor agonists uh, what what if any are you seeing with that oh eric and i just recently did a whole podcast on that and we okay. quickly got shadow banned yeah oh my um. god tell me more <laughs> <laughs> um you know and we we took a fairly middle-of-the-road stance, just pros, cons. I'm fearful this is what's going to happen sort of take on it. But just the fact that we even use some, I guess, brand names discussing it. I mean, there are so many of these drugs out there. What we do know from an anesthetic perspective, okay. when, when Eric goes to put a patient to sleep, if they're on these drugs, it creates such slow intestinal movement that we call gastroparesis. Okay. That food is just sitting in their stomach, and it could be that they haven't eaten for 
two days. It's just sitting there. And when you put somebody to sleep, if they gag, they cannot protect their airway. So that's what we talked about there. Like people really need to think about this, about what's going on. Okay. Then we look at the, there's so many, I mean, the whole podcast is just riddled with, I'm worried about this, 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 and this. So we know that we are seeing some weight loss. We know that it's probably, we're, it's probably helping the morbidly obese person with severe diabetes, but it's just being used so much now. And then I saw that one post where they're filing to do um, a study on kids as young as six well, with this. Yeah, and we don't, maybe there's, they're also going for another indication regarding OCD and addictive behavior because there appears to be something in the GABA receptor and possibly the dopaminergic receptor. The issue with all these things, as you dove into deep regarding depression and neurotransmitters and these things, is we don't really know what the long-term consequence of this kind of thing is. So outside of having possibly permanent gastrointestinal motility issues, which there have been cases of this. So I know that one of my patients was actually contacted by a class action lawsuit lawyer asking if he has severe constipation or severe gastro or, or basically gastroparesis because they're setting up to do a class action lawsuit on that. I have seen a few cases that have been reported about permanent dysfunction so something happens where it could possibly be damaging the nerves. So then you have permanent gastroparesis. And there's that one woman that came out in the news just a couple days ago where she died because she was on uh, Ozempic to go ahead and get ready for her daughter's funeral. And apparently she had a complete bowel obstruction. So the FDA has told them that they have to come out and put that on a warning label. Doesn't matter. People want to lose weight. And so many patients. So many employees around me. I'm just like looking at, at everyone and there it's just this trend. Like they expect it to be a hundred billion dollar drug in the next five years. I think that's the problem is that like that there's, there's a, an avenue there for peptides to be an answer for a bunch of different things. So the, all these GLP-1 agonists are just simply peptides. You know, they're, they're short little protein sequences. But that being said, it's almost as if they find a mechanism of action with some type of result, and rather than run the gamut of making certain that it can be safely administered in every single one of these settings, it's they cast a wide net, they're like, it should work for all of this, and then it's just approved. And I don't know if you feel this way, but this was a question I already knew I wanted to ask you today, but with things like GLP-1, with um, food, which you've written extensively about, with pharma kind of fitting in this mold, it's it just seems rather apparent that there is a quick avenue for approval if something fits the motif of make people fat, make people sick, show people that uh, a pharmaceutical company might have a solution, show people that even when that one has a side effect, we still got yet one more pharmaceutical solution to help for the side effects of this one. It's just this vicious cycle with really bad food and... Hazardly approved drugs. Well, there's so many issues that you both have touched on. And, and I mean, I'm just obsessed with what's happening because it's happening so quickly and, it, and, and it's so dangerous. But one issue is the obesity. And, and you know, I live on the campus of Northwestern University. And on Parents' Day, it's readily apparent that, um, that the students are twice the size of their mothers. Okay, so this young generation mm. is gigantic. Okay, so we do have that obesity issue. 
Um, I personally feel that these GLPs um, are the new statins. Okay, remember Lipitor was the best-selling drug in the world. Okay, and when when a drug is that um, blockbuster, you're not going to hear the negatives until it goes off patent. I mean, we didn't hear about the statin um, memory loss or any of that. Um, you you talk Ken about um, the um, possible addiction addiction benefits, and I'm not saying I don't know about that, but I do know that um, I subscribe to MedPage today. And about three days ago, they had an article about you know, how these uh, GLPs um, also prevent stroke and heart attack. And I'm like, yeah, says pharma. And what pharma loves to do is uh, add on indications because they get um, complete profit for no invest. You know, it's now it's approved. Let's let's you know prescribe it for this and that. So I I checked, and of course, it was the the writers on this article were pharma consultants. It's it's a, a darn lie, you know. And it's so immoral to uh, to float this as news when it's really marketing. It, you know, it, it makes me angry. Well, I think that that's what we see all the time. Where it, I forget what those ads are called, but they're basically oh, like native ads. Like yeah, like native ads where it seems like you're reading an article, but the whole thing's an ad. Right, but, right. But it's obvious when you're like looking at it because you're like, ah, oh, this is weird. But when they're doing it like that and they're getting published in journals, yeah, it's right. still an ad. But nobody would know the difference unless it, unless it's somebody like you that looks at the person then tracks them back. Well, and, and you know there was another article about one day later that talked about how um, primary care physicians are overlooking the great um, benefit of biologics for asthma, and I was like, I bet you anything this guy works for Genetech, and of course he does. You know, but but so many people just I you know my theory is like if you've got a quarter of the population on psych drugs, they're not even thinking critically. You know, I mean, they're not even looking at these and saying, well, wait a minute, it, this doesn't sound right, you know? So there's an avenue, there's an avenue that you've, you've, uh, you've dove uh, headfirst into is, is psych drugs. What, it, what's, what's something that you've explored when we talk about things like SSRIs, their, their use, anxiolytics and different things like that? Where, where, where are you and, and where has your latest investigation taken you? Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm just very against the SSRIs. And the reason is because um, I, I, a close family member of mine killed himself on them, okay? So uh, that's the anecdotal, that's not, not my research, but um, mm -hmm. what, they, what they've done is um, redefine depression, okay? Depression didn't, and thanks to some of these um, trauma front groups. So um, depression, when, when I was young, it was transient, it was self-limiting, and now it's a lifelong condition of a brain chemical imbalance, which we know is not true. And that enables them to keep people on these drugs forever. When they began marketing the SSRIs, they didn't wait for long-term study because they wanted their profit. They wanted to please Wall Street. And we now know that those SSRIs deplete cal calcium and cause bone fractures. And, and so it's like, hello. Mm. So if you're on them 20 years, I have friends. Their, their wrists and their ankles are snapping because they've been on Prozac 20 years. I'm like, why would you be on this drug for 20 years? I mean, your doctor drank the Kool-Aid, you know? You know, uh, when we start looking at that now, just uh, it's it appears that all these SSRIs disrupt your gut microbiome as well. Thank you. Thank and you, then, You know, one of the 90% of the serotonin is produced in the gut. So Eric and I have done uh, podcasts and I've done talks regarding that if you don't have a healthy gut, 
then you cannot actually produce enough dopamine, serotonin, and GABA. And rather than just throw a drug at somebody, start with let's heal your gut first and then give you the proper nutrition to allow your body to use those amino acids to make those neurotransmitters. Now we're giving an SSRI, which all it does is block the reuptake of the serotonin and we're disrupting the microbiome so that your body's own production of serotonin probably goes down in this down regulatory type thing like we see all the time the glp1 agonist where your ghrelin it actually suppresses ghrelin but then when you come off of it ghrelin shoots through the roof so you become ravenous after you come off of it similar things where people when they stop their ssri they probably feel like crap because you probably are not producing even your basal amount before you even started well, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, I was really hoping that both of you would talk about the microbiome, you know, because that's your specialties. And there's so much that we're, we're learning. I would say five years ago, we knew almost nothing. So I'd like to hear more about this. Well, this is, I call it the new frontier. Because right, the, second brain, the second brain, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, e- it's even bigger than that. We really should be considering our microbiome as a vital organ, heart, brain, oh, liver. Oh because it interacts with the brain and the immune system so much that when your microbiome is disrupted, that leads to autoimmune diseases. When you look at graphs of what have gone on, autoimmune diseases on, is on the uptick, cancers on the uptick, all these things are intricately related to the microbiome. And we have all these things that disrupt the microbiome, including antibiotics, and now including SSRIs. We know many drugs do. I'm sorry? Yeah, definitely. So the proton pump inhibitors, you know, it took forever to realize that now patients are coming because they're all off patent. Funny you brought that up. They're all off patent. And now patients are like, I don't want to take this drug because it's going to cause dementia or stroke or osteoporosis. And when they try and come off, same thing. You've downregulated your gastrin or you've suppressed the acid. So your gastrin's way up here. When you come off the drug, then your symptoms rebound so bad. I mean, brilliant of Nexium being the first drug to go OTC, making, they said that the FDA made them say that it, they, on the OTC label, it says take for two weeks, no more. Now, right. if you take, if you take it for two weeks and stop, you have horrible heartburn. You'll have worse heartburn than when you started. And they knew that going into it. So they, you know, so it's like, look, you're hooked. We would love to let you keep purchasing over the counter, but the FDA is only making it that you get two weeks, and then you do two weeks, and then they feel horrible. I mean, I can kind of complain about it, but the reality is it drives a lot of business. People self-treat, and then they feel worse, and then that's when they make the appointment with me. And I'm just kind of like, well, I guess thank you, Nexium, for <laughs> making this patient feel <laughs> so bad. Both of you, um, you know, what are you seeing in your patients? As far as well, any of these issues, what oh kind of, you know, I'd like to know about your patients. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I gastroenterology is very, very backed up with patients. It just seems like there is not an American that doesn't have some GI issue. How about specifically something that you and I talked about about two months ago, uh, when we were discussing the correlation of GI patients and SSRI use that have like IBS and, oh. I mean, it's, it's almost as if anybody who's on a long-term SSRI or any type of serotonin interrupter ultimately is going to come down with a, uh, a GI distressing 
uh, symptom or ailment uh, in and of itself. It's I'm, I've got I've got friends and family of the same. So it, one of the one of the biggest um, let's just call it diagnoses that we'll see in gastroenterology is something called irritable bowel syndrome IBS. And IBS is a trash can term. Basically, if you come to me and you have abdominal discomfort, belly pain, and it's relieved with defecation, and you can have diarrhea or constipation, then you get labeled as IBS if I do an endoscopy and colonoscopy. And it's an interesting thing because patients will be suffering a lot. And what can happen is, is that the doctor comes up and says, good news, it's just irritable bowel syndrome. And then when they say that, we were taught in residency, fellowship, and in medical school, if it's all normal, then give them an antidepressant because it's in their head. Now, the very same thing was done when peptic ulcer disease was diagnosed where it was said, oh, you have an ulcer because you have a bad marriage, you have a stressful job, whatever. And then the Australian gastroenterologist figured out it was due to bacteria. Well, now we know that the majority of these cases if you have bloating and discomfort after you eat, it's due to bacteria growing where it shouldn't be called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And this is, I jumped on that early on. I did some of the, I used to do pharmaceutical research, so I was part of a lot of these studies. And so okay. I saw the inside. I could see what the in, uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria was. I could, you know, and I, I did it for profit. So I was very eager to enroll people. And during that process is when I figured out a natural way to help people. And that's how Eric and I kind of moved into a functional space where we realized this, there's so much, we don't need drugs for everything. And when you have this, you have people that are on SSRIs. So we comment all the time that patients come in and they're on a couple, two, three different forms of anxiolytics or antidepressants. And they're, their belly could be the whole source of all of it. And we could sit there and fix the brain by fixing the gut and not just treating the brain with an antidepressant. So it's rampant. Well, of course, you guys are the specialists on that, but certainly what they're eating has, has to be part of this too, right? 100%. And you'll be happy to know how well-trained all of us doctors are in food and nutrition because the I the department where I trained at was the Department of Gastroenterology and Nutrition. And I think I had three hours total, total of yeah. nutrition. You know, uh, Marsha and Engel, you know, who was uh, with the editor, I think, of New England Journal. And she said, I, I met her, but she said this quite a while ago, that GERD was mostly heartburn and bad eating. You know, that was created. I mean, a lot of diseases, as we know, are created by big pharma. I, I believe there are um, acid excess diseases, but I don't think they're nearly as prevalent as they want us to believe. I think, like, put put down the hoghead cheese. I think if you eat correctly, you don't need a PPI, or you don't have you don't have quote unquote GERD. Yeah, you I think it it might be a little bit more complex because we don't know why acid reflux really started spiking. And so, like, oh. when I talked to when we would get lectures from some of the older professors when they would talk, they're like, we just didn't have the need to even treat this, you know? And so it could be that some of it is that we went around trying to get rid of H. pylori once we yes. figured that out. Yes. That they thought that it was a new organism. And now we realize it's been, been what you can check for DNA data and it's been in the human species since the dawn of time. So it was doing something. It was a commensal organism, not. And have we totally annihilated H. pylori? 
No, it's still 80% of all Indians that live in India have H. pylori. It does nothing. 80%, like 100% of all gastroenterologists have it because we're exposed to it all the time. So, but, but, but you feel that it could be connected with the GERD? I think there is. There are some people that believe it has something to do with relaxing the lower esophageal sphincter. But make no mistake about it. I mean, Eric and I have talked about it. When you look at the obesity trends, the anxiety and depression and uh, ADHD, that, you know, in the late 70s, when they started to introduce the high fructose corn syrup, the processed seed oils, all those things, the obesity curve just goes like this. Then a little bit later, the mental stuff started increasing and continues to increase. So certainly the highly processed diet plays a big role also. Well, yeah, it's this is so underreported, and I'm so glad to meet both of you because um, you said it's a new frontier and it's possibly um, should be considered an organ, you know. And this is so underreported because it flies in the face of big food and big pharma. Definitely. Well, you know, uh, the the aspect that you you describe both big food and big pharma together. Big pharma is an easy one for people to tangibly see and touch, whether regardless if they are someone who's really comfortable with taking several pills a day or someone's probably more like Ken and I and trying to find ways to, if you have to take a pill, let's find out what the shortest duration is possible because you don't necessarily want to be dependent upon a medication for the rest of your life. You want to be able to treat an ailment and then get better <laughs> and then move on, not become, not have a new dependency. But I think where people have the biggest blind spot is big food. And big food is because you, you get comfortable. You get comfortable going to order food from your favorite restaurant. If it happens to be uh, a lot of folks use the fact that they have young kids as an excuse to go and get fast food. <laughs> and fast food is re really, as a kid, it's like the worst time to continue to eat fast food. Even if it's readily available, It your kiddo will be better to have a a well-sourced home cooked meal, even if it's packaged with you and taken with you, you they'll do better long-term with you protecting the integrity of their gut, which will in turn protect their whole body, their brain. But it, in fact, the inverse is what happens. We get marketed to that, you know, uh, kids upset or you're, you're in a rush on the next game, whip into you know, whatever it happens to be. And, and order, order this certain sized meal that will, you know, uh, you know, fill them up, make them feel great. But it wasn't that long ago that uh, some mother's group ran tests on the top 10 food chains in the United States, and 9 out of 10 featured at least one of the three prohibited uh, vaccines oh. and different things like that that oh, weren't supposed really? to be in. Yeah, and that includes Chick-fil-A, Subway, all that stuff. It's they've oh, wow. They've all got some level of exposure to the consumer. One. I will say this because one of the ones that didn't come away and they should get mentioned is Chipotle. Chipotle was one of the ones that at least in this particular sample size was, was claiming so they should get credit. If they're offering a clean product, at least you know that you could begin there. But um, this is the kind of investigate, this is really your realm. So what, what, do, what do people do instead of just being exposed to it, but to learn and take action in your opinion to make a difference? Well, that's, you know, such a, a big, that's a, $60,000 question, but, but you know, Eric, um, I, I kind of focus more on um, factory farming, okay, mm -hmm. and, and like, you know, industrial farming, 
and a lot of people who wouldn't take a vaccine are eating animals that have 30 vaccines. Okay. <laughs> and, and I, you know, uh, so I, I suppose now personally I'm vegan. Okay. But if you were going to eat meat, um, you definitely want organic. You don't want the heavy metals. You don't want the growth producers. You don't want the hormones and the antibiotics. And, and you know, there's, they, they feed um, in the factory farms, they feed turkeys arsenic. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and a lot of this is not, well, it's certainly not on the label, but um, if you were going to eat meat, you really want to have good meat. <laughs> you know, you want to avoid all that. Um, it's amazing that, you know, mo- most of Europe, and this is in my book, so Ken probably saw it, but most of Europe won't, won't eat our meats, okay? Because, um, well, the beef, the beef is um, grown with um, hormones, okay? Both um, male and female hormones to put the weight in. Uh, like Russia or Ukraine or some of those uh, former Iron Curtain uh, nations won't eat our chicken because we dip it in chlorine. Why do we dip dip it in chlorine? Because it's crawling with bacteria, you know? So I think that um, we're, and then of course there's uh, the carbon monoxide that keeps the meat looking fresh, looking red, even though it's a week old. And there's um, the nitrosamines and the like beef, um, the Slim Jims. So there's a lot um, in the meat that is bad for the health, okay? And it's very underreported because as you said, it, the, the parents, the kids, it tastes good, it's quick, you know? It's um, it's just, there's the drugs in, in um, our food are, are really shocking, you know? I, I totally agree. Ken and I actually had a conversation uh, the, earlier this week about he and I both... Uh, typically shop at a couple of select butchers for meat. And um, the two that are closest to where I actually live uh, both boast that they have good connections with the farms that supply them and they are antibiotic and hormone-free. And we're really, really lucky because it's kind of a small community to have that. But a lot of people sometimes will say, well, it's still sometimes it's a little out of my price range. And if for someone who's going to continue to eat that, if we would all kind of migrate to buying that type of source, making that kind of choice, then the product that's unsold would start to not be so ubiquitous. And then the price of of ethically farmed and raised animals would then be available for harvest and, and, and for meat. But I've got a, another follow-up for you. Uh, just earlier this week, I was sent a video story, and I can't recall who produced it. I shared it with Ken and there was a, um, there's an Amish gentleman in Virginia and they have produced meat and milk and dairy products and, uh, uh, pork, etc. all hormone and vaccine free. Very, very, very clean. They even at one point in time took some of their harvest and processed it through a USDA plant and then had some that they processed on location. Well, when COVID came, the USDA plant in Virginia barred them or barred a lot of people from being able to process meat without scheduling it at least six months in advance. Well, that flies in the face of fresh harvest uh, meat, right? And so uh, basically they just said, well, we're just going to keep all the production internal and we'll process it here. Then the state of Virginia went to their farm with a search warrant and tagged all of their, you know, sustainably ethically raised food and basically said, you can't even, not only can you not sell this, 
you can't even feed your own family or you will face jail time. And then came in with some U-Haul trucks, loaded up all of this fresh meat and threw it in a dump. And, and it's, it's just, it's pathetic that the response basically, in, in my opinion, violated the rights of this man's opportunity, the, something he sustainably and, and ethically raised for production, for harvest, happy animals otherwise, just one bad day. And um, they determined that what their course of action was to be was to threaten him, his livelihood, and his family's food supply and, and take it from him. Now, I think, Eric, that I did read about this a little bit, but who did you say confiscated their meat? Who was it? It was some portion or some part of the Virginia state government acting on behalf of whatever that local law is up there. I don't, I'm not, I'm unfamiliar exactly. Yeah. Eric's um, almost becoming an investigative journalist. He just lacks a few details to <laughs> <laughs> something no. happened. And something. <laughs> you know, well, you're talking about creating a market for better, better products. So they would come down in price. And it, it, it is true that the, the good food costs more. It just does. Mm-hmm. And, and the cheap, awful stuff is cheap, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's a whole other issue. I, I've written a lot about creating a market for or supporting, like, let's say I go into a 7-Eleven or a White Hen or something. Um, everything in there is GMO, okay, except like sometimes you'll find like a potato chip that says no GMO, but, you know, we're swimming in it, okay? And, and as I've both, I'm sure you both know, they're creating GMO food animals, okay? Like a, a pig that produces um, a, a good omega, uh, whatever, they cross oh. it with that. Mm. <laughs> and, and that is so scary. That's Brave New World, okay? I don't think anybody wants to. Well, how about uh, the aqua ad- advantage salmon? Okay, so the GMO animals is kind of very underreported. Uh, it's creepy, you know. Very. But I mean, we we know more about the GMO food, you know, the, the wheats, the corns, the, you know, the soy, you know, Roundup Ready soybeans, you know. But um, you know, I I've heard it said. I don't know for myself, but that the GMO uh, Food, which all the animals need it, um, is part of uh, part partly behind the obesity. Have either of you ever heard that? Only from the people. aspect that if, like the highly processed seed oils, can cause local inflammation in the gut, and then if you've got the glyphosates and things like that, cause local inflammation, can disrupt the microbiome. So obesity, one of the causes of obesity, is actually a an unbalanced microbiome. We do know that you can take stool from a obese mouse and put it in a skinny mouse and the skinny mouse will blow up and become obese and vice versa. So we know that that plays a big role. And we also know that when you have intestinal inflammation, the cytokines that go around turn on your uh, stress hormones, cortisol. So your cortisol goes up. So from my aspect, geez, I, I, clearly I Everything's a nail when it comes to me. I keep talking gut health for everything, but it does really seem like it it plays into it. So. Oh, it is. It is. Um, no, I, I mean, it, it gut health, it, and I can, 10 years ago, it, there was not the awareness that there is now of, of, you know, how much it affects the immune system, the autoimmune diseases, which are coming out of the, the woodwork, you know, for sure. But, um, no, I, I, I think it's, it, it's underreported. I really do. Well, as an investigative journalist, 
what do you think has to happen to make the administrative portion of government to begin to work back on the behalf of the the consumer? And what I mean by that is if it weren't okayed by either the FDA, the USDA, or something like that, then things now which are looking like that they're going to be made available commercially, like lab-grown meat. I don't want to eat lab-grown meat. Um, I, I don't believe that it's ethical for them to take things which are uh, at their base root inflammatory and allow them to be labeled as organic, like organic canola oil. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, you literally could say that uh, there's an organic nail gun and then hit your friend with an organic nail gun in the, in the head and it's going to hurt. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So it seems like that there is an active part of the administrative state, if you will, that's willing to either be for sale or they've – how do we pull away their intentions to just basically say go, everything's fine, and get them back to acting on behalf of the consumer? Because oftentimes it seems like that they are approving for sale pieces of industry which are just inherently – uh, unsafe or, or quite harmful? Well, um, that's the ultimate question, Eric. And um, what we have, I'm sure you've heard the term, is regulatory capture that FDA and yeah. USDA and uh, NIH and CDC are, are captured by industry. And it's about money. It's just about money. And, you know, the cronyism is, is part of it, too, because you can you can follow the money, but if somebody works at um, FDA and then they go to industry, they go to Roche, yeah. Okay, they um they're going to come back and sell uh, their former colleagues on a Roche product. No money involved. That's cronyism. Okay, but for the most part, um, what we have now, our commissioner, our, our last two FDA commissioners have been um, pharma consultants and very funded by pharma. So it's really a joke. I mean, regulation is a joke. CDC has a, a foundation which has millions and millions of dollars from drug makers. And, and that, again, it's just a joke, you know? So it's industry money. And, and I, I suppose how we would deal with it would be strong consumer movements that object to that. Because right now these agencies are just captured. And you, you both have mentioned the quick approvals. That's how do you get a quick approval? You pay, pay FDA, right? You know? Absolutely. When you look at how much we spend on healthcare and just the whole, I mean, the whole universe of hospital, pharma, insurance, everything going around there and how the food contributes to it, imagine just taking some of that money out. And we have a friend um, who's, his business is to grow organic food in that um, vertical, Oh, what did he describe it? Uh, Schwartz. Yeah, Taylor, yeah. Tyler Schwartz. Uh, you could, there, there are companies out there which are developing or that have developed the ability to grow healthy food in very small places because it's vertical and it. it's like a conveyor belt. I mean, just doing that and putting it in areas where there are food deserts, like very poor areas in the south where it has huge diabetes, huge hypertension, and that alone would decrease the cost burden on our health care so much, just giving access to real food for people. Things like that, but it doesn't seem like anybody's talking about that. No. No, you're absolutely right, Ken. And it's it's sort of like um, 
it's not really farming. It's kind of vertical under roofs and that type of thing. But but you're absolutely right. If, if you know, I, I I kind of believe it's um unhealthy unhealthy people who have uh, overweight and diabetes are given um, healthful food. Their body says yes to it very soon. I mean, it, it, it's like their body kind of knows this is what what you need or what you needed. So yeah, I um. I, I attended a lecture yesterday at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., about this very issue of how big food, which I think began really with Heinz and, and Weight Watchers, just captured this whole um, sector. Okay, so that uh, we're, as food eaters, we're really powerless against the, the money that goes into, um, you know, the big food uh, selling, you know, just like what what would keep the the... the good food out of these places you're talking about in the south and the food deserts there, there's a lot of financial interests that that really want to keep people eating mm. kfc or whatever that is i don't eat that stuff but you know the fast food stuff um, there's a lot of reason to keep people eating it and if you look at the ads you know you look at a football game it's all you know fast food right we did a podcast because there was an investigative journalist, an investigative journalist published uh, the American Dietetics Association. Somehow they had access to whatever that law is where they got access to a bunch of emails. Um, FOIA? Right. Freedom of Information Act, right. Yes. That. And so they, they looked back and the whole American Dietetics Association that is supposed to give us our RDA Right, supposed right. to recommend what our kids eat in schools. <laughs> they're supposed right, to do right. all this. Right. There's all these emails. Of, they're being funded by Kellogg's, by, I mean, Nestle, Gatorade. General Mills. General Mills. Totally oh, yeah. funded yeah. there. And in these emails, this is like one of those things, like, did, I mean, if you put it in an electronic form, at some point, somebody's going to see it. They said pizza was a vegetable. Yeah. <laughs> They had to, you know, the craft cheese slices, you know, said that it, uh, they were saying it should be in everybody's um, all school lunches. And it's just, you know, oil and fake orange coloring and stuff. Yeah. No, they're very much captured. They're, the dietetic associations and nutritionists are captured. And I hear them on the radio. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, if you want to lose weight or, or whatever, eat like, like you say, Velveeta cheese. And I'm just like, who's, you know, what are they reading? And. You know, some people are, are innocent victims of, like, for example, getting back for a second to Big Pharma, okay? You have certain pharma front front groups, which I'm not going to name their names, but they they, they would um, present a disease, okay? And they honestly think they're being helped in their disease, but in point of fact, they're backed by pharma who's trying to sell a drug. So I, I think that, you know, some of these dietitians or nutritionists might not realize who's funding, you know? They might be well-intentioned. I totally agree. Hey, I mean, freely admit here, I was very well-intentioned when I was a resident and I would go out to a really nice dinner two to three times a week. We didn't have a whole lot of money. You'd go out with your buddies. Your professor's giving you a lecture on super expensive drugs. You know, this is when Remicade came out. This is when Humira just launched. Right. And, you know, and it's the, the message then was to get in front of the potential of your patient getting worse. So rheumatoid arthritis, they came out with these, you know, disease-modifying drugs. So right, if you right. don't do this, your patient inevitably will become this. So, and, you know, it, they, the drug just came out. And you're like, well, what did we do for the last, you know, couple hundred years? The disease has been around. What were we doing? Were they 
all inevitably becoming this. And then suddenly the message is you're going to be culpable. This is, you know, that's where the whole opioid thing, it's, you know, you're going to be culpable if your patient's in pain. By age, the younger the physician was, the more apt they were to buy into Purdue Pharma's marketing and enrolling a patient into basically their pain protocol being treated with opioids. And it, when you're younger, you feel like that you're going to make this difference, that you're going and, and you're just basically you're susceptible to a little easier indoctrination into this is the way. And you're afraid to question. Uh, I mean, we saw that with the pandemic. It was it was generally older doctors who said we must treat patients the best that we can. And it unfortunately was younger physicians and nurses who didn't know any better. And they were like, we can't see anybody. We have to close down because of, of COVID. And they were willing to turn people away. I mean, uh, Ken knows who I'm talking about, but I had a close friend of mine who reported to an ER with a SAT of 91%, and he was told to go home if it, and if it got any lower to come back. I mean, it, it's not normal. We, we've, we've never dealt with things like that or like that, I, I should say. You mentioned something that's so interesting. The younger physicians, there was an exact moment in time, which I believe was in the 80s, when the medical schools were invaded by big pharma um, messaging and uh, the, the stuff we're talking about, the professors telling you to use Humira. And um, I can remember when it wasn't that way, because uh, when I was really young, I worked for medical school. And um, there was an exact moment where they realized if you build a wing for this, you know, if Cyril builds a wing, you know, and um, you're right, it, it's, I, I find the younger uh, clinicians, clinicians don't even have di diagnostic skills anymore. I mean, the older doc, he could take his stethoscope and he could he can tell you know, or he can what's the one where they pulsate on your body, but they they don't need an X-ray or a, a CT scan to tell you what's going on. And the younger ones are completely technology dependent and or, or, and drug dependent. Like you said, well, you need a Humira, you need a um, you know, whatever. And, and I, I ask you both this because I don't know. I'm just always asking questions. But it felt to me like those um, uh, humerus and all the Nietzsche's, um could cause, uh, could lower your immune system and cause you to catch more. I mean, don't they, don't they um, lower like um, resistance in, in terms of like um, they talk about kids get lymphoma and that type of thing? Yeah, it definitely affects that. You're at risk for virus and, fung and fungal infections significantly. I'm seeing over time people will develop a lot of skin issues, skin cancers, things like that. And, you know, rare and other things, you know, things just pop up. We do know that it is definitely affecting the immune system for sure. I mean, now, that we, it, in my field, when Remicade came out, which was, you know, the first TNF blocker, the first... It was groundbreaking for a lot of people because it worked so well. So there, there, there is an indication for it, but just like you've talked about in your book, does that indication mean that the big pharma needs to get on and take ads out for an orphan drug that costs twenty thousand dollars just for one month? Well, and also, um, you know, and again, you guys are the specialists. I'm not, but I can remember when, like. Um, plaque psoriasis or RA were not like definitely terrible <laughs> conditions to have. And now when you watch TV, you think that's like the biggest public health problem we have, you know? I think some of that, and this is odd, and you're, you're correct, and I totally agree with you. When I was younger, it didn't seem like it was um, 
more or less kind of almost like a sentence, you know, it was, it was, it was just something that people kind of existed with. But I oftentimes wonder if it's this confluence of so many different things that if somebody now has a disease that back in the eighties, maybe not even late seventies, just wasn't nearly as dire that unfortunately so much of our food has been infiltrated with other inflammatory yeah. things yeah. that everything just becomes compounded. And the, the, I mean, to another step further, the abundance of microplastics. And now we're, we already discussed the higher prevalence of yes. hormones and, and vaccines and meat. You've, you've got to be so diligent. And I mean, I feel like that I'm reversing damage even for myself of where I choose my, my food to be. I'm, yeah, and I get teased, except for I slowly realize that that you know some some of my people that I'm very close with are starting to kind of adopt some of these things slowly but surely. And because I I didn't think this way at first, but you almost have to be so diligent in choosing where you eat, what you eat, how you eat it, because there are so many chances for assault that you're you're wide open you don't know where it's coming from so yes I, I agree i think that sometimes these diseases that were probably quite manageable have just been exacerbated and have been made worse because exactly the, right. the food and environment is worse and the, the election i heard yesterday the election i heard yesterday uh by a pharmacology professor he said one thing you can do and i agree with him is learn to cook yeah. okay because people want their food now they want it they don't care what's in learn to cook you know, learn what's in there and, and find your ingredients and, and, and you know, do it correctly. Uh, he said people are so rushed that they just eat anything, you know. And, um, you know, they we do get laughed at. Um, I don't eat in restaurants, you know, because I don't know what they're doing in the kitchen there. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, and I, there's a pizza place close to me. And as soon as people get their slice before they eat it, they salt it. <laughs> like it's not salty enough, you know. Yeah, this is a, I give a lecture that basically shows a baby. You have this golden window to form your microbiome. It's age zero to three years old. And th when a child is three years old, their microbiome is effectively like that as an adult. So you have this golden window to make a huge difference in their life. And once they have this, the microbiome is constantly under assault. It's under assault by pollutants. It's under assault by infections. It's under assault by the environment, and it's also under assault by the foods we eat. Of all those, the one thing that you can really control is what you put in your mouth. So Eric and I had these bracelets made that uh, I give to my patients after I do a colonoscopy that it's just a little blue bracelet, and it says um, WWYMS. And that stands for what would your microbiome say? And so I'm saying next time you're in line... The kids are in the back. You're at a drive-through. Look down at your wrist and go, "What would my microbiome say about this?" I love this. Is, it, is that your invention? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but in in full disclosure, it was my son who came up with it because he's like, obviously, I talk about this stuff all the time. Like my kids have kind of grown up with this weirdo that's always trying to try supplements and come up with we. Uh, I actually developed a natural product, and so Eric and I have this, uh, and so we're always trying to develop new things, and we're in this space, and so it's pretty funny. And so my son just goes, why don't you just hand out a bracelet that just tells everybody what would their microbiome say? And I'm like, that is brilliant. Yeah. You know, th honestly, they're green now. You didn't know that, but we just got some more in. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they're, they're green now. Fantastic. 
Um, no, it's it's just you know the, the whole fast food thing. Yesterday, um, the professor said if you're eating out, you're overeating, and and that's a little bit categorical, but it's kind of true because the portions have become so darn big. Yep. Okay, I mean it, it's astounding to me how big the portions are. You know, everything's become big: houses, cars, people, portions. You know. Totally agree. And I would even take it one further instead of just learning to cook, which I think is essential. I think that's step one. I think step two would be learn to garden, learn how to, and, and, and I'm, I'm reacquainting myself with, with things that, that I saw people do when I was younger, but it wasn't, it really wasn't something that people my age were learning how to do was to cultivate. And I can still remember going out to the peach tree and the apricot tree with my with my, my grandmother um, in her backyard. And why why we didn't move in that direction doesn't make a lot of sense. But, I mean, there's no better way to control your own food supply than to wow, do it yourself. I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I do um, shop at Whole Paycheck, Whole Foods, and you can you have a better chance of getting healthier stuff but it's it is expensive you know and i love the idea of growing your own if, if you you can do so and you know there have been i live in chicago you know there have been some uh, urban gardening projects or urban food projects here and there you know to where kids are taught uh, this whole thing that we're talking about it's um you know but i always say too if you go it, it isn't that hard to eat well if you go into any store you can at least have a banana and a granola bar, you know, which aren't, aren't going to like. I mean, you, there's always some something you could eat that would be not harmful. You know, you don't have to gobble down some of this highly processed, um, what are they called, super ultra ultra processed stuff. Yeah. You know, the I, you just got me thinking about something. You know, the way that grocery stores set that up very specifically that so that the you know they they sell the highly processed foods and all that and everything is trying to get your brain to do this and the one benefit of big pharma basically taking all the commercials is eric and i we've done a series of fasting where we try to fast for like five days at a time they will water fast uh you notice every food commercial yeah everything they're everywhere billboards everything you're just like oh and i'm like well at least big pharma takes up some of the space so it's not all food when we try and <laughs> oh fast. that's funny you know um in in london uh, they removed ads along the trains the commuter trains for fast food and the um medical people the clinicians clinicians actually identified something like a 30 percent drop in sick people I mean, it was, it was actually noticeable and verifiable. So, I mean, that was just one study, but I can't forget it because it's like advertising, um, it works. It just works, you know? And like you say, it, you look at them, you're fasting. I've never fasted. I do fast on, I try to fast on Thanksgiving because I think we don't need more gluttony. I mean, Americans are so darn fat, you know? <laughs> well, we've, uh, uh... Eric has talked about this where he watched the original Jaws movie. Oh yeah, and uh, I was watching, I was watching Jaws. Uh, man, this was it just about a month ago, month and a half ago. I said that, yeah. and I was watching it with someone who's younger, and um, they instantly pointed out that everybody on the beach, you know, they were contemplating getting back in the water. Like, why everyone's so skinny? <laughs> and you know, and that was honestly that was just. 
that was just what people looked like in the 70s. It wasn't, they, they didn't do a casting call for skinny people. That's just what people looked like. So that much has changed in 40-some years. Yeah, it's crazy. It's sad. And, and the problem is the frame of reference. If you're the same size as your friends and nobody's fat because everybody's fat, you know. And I mean, I'll see three or four girls walking together. They're 20 or 18. They take up the whole sidewalk. Okay. Yeah. Because it's it's um, acceptable because it's everywhere. You know. Okay. So, this is a whole different thing that I have not gotten into. But as an investigative journalist, uh, you might want to look into one of. I don't remember what doctor was discussing this, but he is a psychiatrist, and what he was looking at is the possibility that these foods. So, we. I get that obesity is a problem. I get that obesity can be very hard to treat. I get that we want to call it a disease. But it is possible that this, our diets, our environment, vaccines, antibiotics, are actually affecting us at a cellular level in the mitochondria. And so his research is showing that there's disruption of the mitochondria, which is leading to the... um, obesity epidemic which is actually going on and so that has to be thought of from the inside out which is no different than everything that we're talking about it's just processed foods it's you know trying to stay clean and all of that maybe these things are disrupting your mitochondria i think it's very likely and i've kind of heard that from some sources i i think it's um really um everything i i don't think there's one simple uh, derangement of the body, but I, I think that makes sense. Do you remember the name of, of that person who the doc? I don't. I'm. This is why I could never be an investigative journalist. I just I put the headphones on and I go work out, and I'm usually catching a podcast or I'll find something. You know, I'll see a Google alert and then follow it up. So I've kind of wondered though, because I I think there's a lot to a story like that, and I don't have necessarily the proof sitting in front of me, but it it would almost match up in that when you look at why certain products get created, it's usually because there's a need to solve a problem. And it doesn't NMN affect mitochondrial health. Isn't that what NMN is? I think NMN eventually becomes glutathione. What, which one is it? This the um, There's so many different supplements, and I, I could be messing that up, but there's one of them. That is a mitophagy catalyst. And, and I would imagine that the reason why we go down the rabbit hole of trying to find supplements to enhance our health is inherently because damage has been done through the food that we've been eating and the environment has changed it that we need to find supplementation. I think that if we were to back up the clock here, even in North America, just a hundred years ago, people weren't shopping around for a ton of supplements because they were having GI distress and... And fatigue and everything else, and everybody suddenly was obese. We've begun eating really, really crappy foods and crappy diets, and so we've we've found this need to go and find supplementation because we we can't get what we used to get, which was high density uh, nutrition from the food that we eat. And for good, so you know, well, one thing that I'm sure you're both really aware of is the dangers of high fructose corn syrup. Oh yeah. I'm told that corn is the most abundant and subsidized crop we have in the U.S. Uh, some of the docs I worked with uh, wrote a really interesting paper. I forget where it ran. That um, they they believed uh, that the high fructose corn syrup um, activates a, a atavistic 
hibernating kind of thing in humans where they want to eat and eat and eat. And um, they believe that the high fructose corn syrup is kind of behind like the gamers and the uh, Mountain Dew and the ADHD and the autism. I mean, they they really indict the high fructose corn syrup. And, and I, I don't question it because it's in everything, you know? Well, yeah, let me. So we talk a lot about this, actually. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and so there was a very pivotal article which actually looked at this at w what high fructose corn syrup does. And so basically high fructose corn syrup has to be processed in the liver to become usable for the oh, brain. Okay. So you eat, it's very, cal it's very calorie dense, but the brain is not being fed. Oh so my then, gosh. Yeah, so what you're referring to as the hibernating is actually called the foraging effect. And so okay. Okay. the brain goes, hey, I need some fuel here. You know, let's, we got to go, but you're just sitting there because you're lethargic and you're playing a game or you're doing whatever. Well, the brain is ramping up and that's where the increased incidence of ADHD comes up and anxiety. And then what ends up happening is you get anxious. You're just, oh, and then you just grab and you do another one and you repeat this process over and over. Then take that into effect that you're not getting good nutrition. And so your dopamine is low. So you have no motivation or I'm sorry, your L-tyrosine intake is low that gets converted to dopamine in the gut. Now we've got no motivation to get off the couch and go do something. So that is actually something really big. And like when I talk to friends that have uh, children that have mood issues or anxiety, that's the first thing I say is I'm like, is there any high fructose corn syrup anywhere? Because it's this foraging effect that is closely related. And then if you look at the graph, when high fructose corn syrup was introduced, the obesity just goes like this. I mean, it's just straight up. And now it's becoming like a hockey stick. Because the brain is saying, feed me, even though yeah. the body's got that. Isn't it interesting? It's, it's really criminal, I think. It is criminal, and I think that it actually targets uh, unfairly those who don't have the economic means and or time to right. overcome it. We, if, if our government is going to subsidize the creation and distribution of all of these different, I mean, if it, it doesn't start and end only with high fructose corn syrup. It's a lot of food additives that we subsidize and encourage these large corporations to put into, uh, just you put it, big food. For big food to put into their big food products, then it's, it, it, and literally our tax dollars are working against ourselves for our uh, lower economic means of, of the population for them to get even if they live in a food abundance, if they're really, really close to a Whole Foods, it's still a food desert for them because it's cost prohibitive for them to go and acquire the foods that are going to serve them far better. No, it's, it's, right. it's wrong. You're absolutely right. And, you know, my book um, kind of com contrasts FDA with USDA because both are liable, you know, yep. culpable. But there is a huge difference that USDA um, – literally says its mission is to help farmers and it will subsidize the high fructose corn syrup producers whereas fda doesn't actually say we'll help pharma so usda you know what it um, subsidizes is junk food okay and it goes mm. into the school lunch programs and the snap programs and the food stamps and that's where the money is for um the those quote unquote farmers but also our tax dollars and usda doesn't hide the fact that they they subsidize this stuff and that's why it's cheap. And, and they, I don't know why they don't look at the health ramifications, you know? I don't know either. It seems like if, if our battle is for more uh, self-sustaining farming, and if, if we, 
I, I read a story that you had written, reread a story actually, that you had written back in, I think it was 2018, and you were talking about uh, the move from, there's a word for it, but when they cage chickens to get eggs and they were going to move to aviary, uh, I'm, I'm probably butchering it a little bit, but were they, were they were moving to a new method to to harvest eggs, but it was healthier for the hens to do so because they weren't basically kept into a box before they were then slaughtered for their for the meat. And the pushback from the industry was, if I remember your article correctly, was this is going to cost too much for us to do this, that, and the other. But no mention of the fact that what they were doing with the caged hens was a subsidized process in and of itself. So it seems odd. Oh yeah, it's it's um you know I've I've never really written about the farm bill um you know as I um down the road I really want to look at um I think it's underreported the subsidies to big ag mm-hmm. and how the little farmers squ- squeezed out and the whole thing it's it, I really have focused more on, on pharma because it's just easier for somebody who's not from a, a rural area you know to know but but what you see um you know one thing that this is a whole different topic that we'll, we'll have to do next time. But, you know, the largest pork slaughterhouse in the world is in uh, North Carolina, Tar Heel, North Carolina, and it's owned by China. Okay. And China, oh. you know, bought it so that they always have pork it, it, while, their, while their pork gets African swine uh, fever. But, you know, that the idea of um, massive uh, food factory or fa- packing houses that are not even owned by us and, you know, not, and producing a lot of their food is recalled. It's not health, healthful food, you know, but, but, you know, what you see, um, the, the exports, the, um, you see the money in, in big food that USDA supports. And it's just, it's almost too big to address. It's just huge. I mean, when, when China brought, brought this slaughterhouse port itself. Okay. There were congressional hearings about to what extent do we want foreign countries to buy our land, you know? It's a whole yeah. different topic, right? Hey, can I ask a big favor? Oh, of course. So, course. your book, Big Food, Big Pharma, Big Lies, great book. Uh, for your sequel, can can you write something much happier and, you know, just <laughs> maybe some comedic flair? Because... This is, uh, you start looking, when I started looking at this, I'm just like, holy cow, this has gone on. Like, it goes way back. It's just different methods, and they just get more power, and they just, uh, I'm like, oh my gosh. I, we didn't even get a chance to even, well, good, because you need, if you're on an antidepressant, or <laughs> you're taking an antidepressant that's actually an antipsychotic, love that chapter that talks about all that, or a pain medicine like gabapentin, or... All these other things, you're going to want to read this book because when you see how these things were actually approved and how they got pushed through and the way they're advertised, it's scary. Like I, I don't, I didn't, I don't trust big food or big pharma before I picked the book up. Now I'm like terrified of it. And now you're telling me that China's owning all our pork farms. Well, and, you know, like Eric pointed out, um, uh, the poor people are uh, in what's the word um, incomparably. Um, hurt by this, okay, but if you're a low-income person. Also, what really breaks my heart to see is how our military is hurt by this, the yep. drugs. And it also breaks my heart to see how, like, young kids who are um, foster child children, they're doped up with those antipsychotics, and suddenly they've gained 100 pounds, and now they've got health problems. 
and all they needed was somebody to guide them. You know, so so the ramifications are are in in certain areas where we really see it. You know, um, military times and art, which is kind of the same content as army time. They've reported on it. Um, you know, what what's happening to our guys at like Fort Hood or Fort Leonard Wood or something is sickening. You know, they're, they they're drugged up. We had Ryan Birdman. Yeah, Patton. Patton. Parrot. Parrot. <laughs> I almost did it again. We had a, a great Navy SEAL named Ryan Birdman Parrot who, he came on the show because he uh, started what was called the 7X Foundation, which is they were going to go basically just do these extreme things to raise awareness and raise money for the huge number of these soldiers committing suicide. And he had uh, his mentor that never would have, he would have thought it, after he came back and PTSD, and now let's get into what you were talking about, probably started on an SSRI. And now we have these soldiers that are committing suicide that have been through a lot. I get it. But they made it through that. They come back here. And then what are we doing to them here? In other words, what drugs are we giving them which could potentially actually be pushing it over the edge or even causing it? Well, you're right. But actually, can when the government reported on the suicides probably 10 years ago, um, you could see that a third of those soldiers who killed themselves had never even deployed, okay? And Ooh. I think another third had never seen combat. So it is a drug. There's no question that it's a drug. Wow. Yeah. It, it's it's sickening. I, I interviewed a wife of a soldier. who He was in Iraq, and he came back. And he, he told her on the phone, I don't want to ever see you again. And they were married, you know. I hate you. And they put him in the bridge. He totally lost it. And um, what it was was lyrium, the, the, the malaria. malaria. Yeah. And it, it, it ruined their, he became violent. It ruined their marriage. So I, I really care about our military. You know, they're, they're um, underdogs, I think. You know, they didn't used to be underdogs. But, you know, what, when you look at morale and you look at, uh, well, how, how this big pharma has just infiltrated in there, it's just wrong, you know? Well, I tell you what, there's so much more we can talk about because <laughs> I have a lot that I, would, I wanted to clear a few things up, how you figured this stuff out. I'm a, how did you build this kind of person, like some of the way that you wrote this. But this is a great book. Everybody needs to go out and pick up Big Food, Big Pharma, Big Lies. And this was fantastic. We could talk for days about a lot of things. And I just uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. And we are going to run this again. Because there's a lot more to discuss. Heck yeah, I, honestly, I, I feel like that what we just did today, Martha, is a, a preface. Because what I'd like to do later is that we're going to have to find one avenue and then dig really, really deep. Because you've got a wealth of exposure that's given just a, a whole breadth of knowledge to... I mean, it's it's not just about the corruption. I think that we can find that. We can you can You can research it and you can see it. But that, and someone might say, why would you want to do this? To me, it's more about if I know what the problem is, maybe we can find some things to find our way out of it. And that's what I'd like to see if we can do. I totally agree with you. Um, and I loved hearing everything that you guys have seen and heard and, and studied. Um, I want to mention one thing to anybody who might buy the book. It's not that depressing because it has 17 cartoons in it, right? This is true. There are some good <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> and 
want to be too depressing. So you could just flip through the cartoons and get the gist of it. Are you the cartoonist? Yes. Nice. Yeah. Oh, she's an artist also. Nice. Well, it's not great art, but you know, it's like one of them um, that that you'll see if you if you get the book um, is this lady's in, opening up a Chinese fortune cookie. And the and the message says you're at risk for osteoporosis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like advertising everywhere. So thank yeah. you guys so much. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Martha. Thank you, uh, everyone. This is Martha Rosenberg. Thank you so much for your time for joining us today. Please like and share this episode with as many as you can. Ken, anything else? Well, just where else can people find you? Well. Um, I would say at this well, that, that I'm a freelancer, so I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. I would say to find me, you would just uh, Google my name, Google Martha Rosenberg Reporter, and you'll see where, where my most recent thing might be. Awesome. We'll be okay. sure and include uh, how to buy your book and what uh, whatever else that we can find of uh, high interest. I've got some of my favorite articles that I was reintroduced to whenever you're going to come on the show, so we'll put some links of those yeah, in the yeah. show notes. So. Um, but then again, Martha, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone, thank you all so much for joining the Gut Check Project. We will see y'all next time. Take care. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out Gut Check Project to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get gut checked.